Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, David Finoli and Bill Rainier, the authors of The Pittsburgh Pirates Encyclopedia, Second Edition. Our guests are Bill Rainier and David Finoli, and they are the authors of this book, The Pittsburgh Pirates Encyclopedia. Uh, David, we'll start with you. Um, when did you start following the Pirates? I started following the Pirates probably late 60s, 68, 69. I was about uh, seven, eight years old at the time and actually saw my first game at Shea Stadium uh, the year the Mets uh, uh, won, the, uh, won the World Series in 1969. Uncle took me to see the Pirates, and uh, uh, luckily, uh, one of the few games the Mets lost in that stretch in September, and uh, fell in love with uh, with the team at that point. Did you have any heroes right early on? Oh, Roberto Clemente. I, I think he was every kid's hero in that uh, in in that uh, era. Um, could do it all. Um, certainly, when asked to hit for power in the late '60s, he, he showed he could with 29 homers, um, and just. If, if you think about what Jackie Robinson went, went through, uh, being from a uh, uh, Latin American uh, uh, player, he, he went through uh, sometimes a, a lot more difficult time with the language barrier as well as the, the color barrier, um, breaking into the league and, and just by the end of his career, um, revered. Uh, certainly among among the city, got to show himself off in the 1971 World Series to a nation that um, I'm sure at the time didn't fully appreciate what a what a superstar he was. And unfortunately, uh, only a few days after the Steelers played in their first AFC Championship uh, uh, game, well, actually the same day, not a few days. Um, it was a few days after the Immaculate Reception. Um, he died a hero's death, um, trying to take uh, uh, supplies to uh, Nicaragua and, and, and get them through uh, a government that was stealing the supplies um, and not getting them to the people. Um, certainly today, he, he lives as the ultimate icon in, in Pittsburgh, sports or otherwise. Bridge. He has his bridge. He has actually a stat that um, came up when I was researching uh, for another book. He has more things named after him uh, worldwide than any U.S. president, and just um, just remarkable. I mean, in, in Puerto Rico, he's he's considered probably the most beloved uh, uh, citizen of of the country there is, and and you know here you just see him everywhere. Pirate fans. Uh, uh, you know, it's almost like they still mourn the loss 40 years later, and it's something you just really don't see um, um, around. And, and just what a remarkable player, remarkable life he lived. Bill, what's your early memories of the Pirates? Well, my earliest memory uh, was going to Forbes Field and seeing Clemente play. Um, but what I remember most about the day was two fans ran onto the field, shook Clemente's hand, and then scaled the, the screen in right field. Um, 
you know, I was probably about seven or eight years old at the time, so that kind of made an impression. You know, I didn't really understand that much about baseball, but, you know, I knew Clemente was the best player on the team. Did you follow the team in the paper and read box scores and listen to them on the radio? Not at that age, but as I got older, I really fell in love with the team around 1971. And at that point, I became really obsessive about, you know, following, listening to as many games as I could because there weren't that many games on TV in those days. There was like 40 games a year or maybe televised, and they were all away games. So I'd listen to Bob Prince and Nellie King on the radio every night, uh, catch the games on TV when I could, and, of course, read the morning edition of the paper and the afternoon edition of the paper to catch different takes on the game. It's, it's interesting you mentioned... Um about listening to the game and how how it's kind of a lost art now unless you're you're driving in the car my my father who um just a devout baseball and pirate fan he's he's turned 100 this year and um you know he was he was a little upset that he couldn't get many games in spring training because he really wanted to watch baseball and so i said dad why don't you just listen to the game on the radio so he turned it on and he calls me at work and just goes on and on about, oh my gosh, they, it was like when I was younger, they're just so descriptive. And, and he started just remembering uh, all, all the times he would sit down. Uh, I mean, my gosh, he was alive when they won the 25 series. Mm -hmm. And he was a fan then. Mm -hmm. And he just remembered uh, all those days of, uh, of sitting down and listening to it. And it, it just was a, such a great moment to, to hear him talk about that. Now, this book is the second edition, and you were on this program when the first edition came out, which was 2002. What's new, and why did it need another edition? It's new they're winning. That's, <laughs> that's the biggest new thing. Uh, it, um, you know, there have been some good players in the last 20 years before the last couple of winning seasons. You know, Brian Giles, Jason Kendall, guys who modern fans will, I, will tell their children about, people who are, you know, 15 years old, those are the players they grew up with and really, uh, I'm sure, really loved. Um, but we wanted to, to bring out a new, uh, a kind of a new generation of a Pirate fan and connect them with the, the, the tradition of Pirate baseball as well as uh, kind of honoring the current players, the current um, regime that's brought winning baseball back to Pittsburgh, and the players who were in the, in the 20 years of kind of darkness. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and every generation has it. When when we were in high school growing up, the Penguins were the the outcast, the team everybody stepped on, um, and nobody was really fans of. And and um, when we um, went to uh, high school and, and college, the Pirates were among the best teams in the game. Um, and I know my my children. Um, I want my oldest son, who's a, just turned into a devout baseball fan. Um, Never really connected that, you know, uh, what a uh, successful franchise this had been. And, and you, you had mentioned uh, before the broadcast about the Phillies' all-time all -time record. People were stunned to see that the Pirates had a plus 500 record for the history of the franchise even after those 20 years. So um, it, it's, it's kind of nice to, you know, that they're finally enjoying what we did. But you do compile their, their complete win-loss record over the history of the season up until the end of the 2014 mm -hmm. season, and uh, they have 9,999 losses as of the 2014 season. Yes, we, 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 we've cleared that hurdle uh, this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you guys stats fans? Do you pour over stats and just love crunching them in different ways? 
for me, not as much as I used to. Uh, when I was single, didn't have children, yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at stats, reading stats of not just the Pirates, pretty much every team in the league. You know, I could probably tell you some guy who was a September recall for St. Louis in 1974. I can't do that these days. <laughs> I like to say it's because I'm busy. It might just be early senility. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do have one statistic in here that's most Pythagorean wins over actual wins. Now, I have never heard that one. What's a Pythagorean win? The, the, the Pythagorean theory is, is what a team is basically expected to win based off their runs scored versus runs given up. So it, it's just a simple calculation w with if you score more runs than you've given up, you, you should win uh, more games than not. So say you, you score 800 and give up 800 runs, you should be 81 and 81. So if the team finishes 90 and, and 72, then that's plus nine wins over what they could have expected with the runs they scored versus what they've given up. And um, um, conversely, if they, if they lose or only win uh, um, 72 games, that would be uh, nine games below. So um, it, it's a neat calculation. I don't know if it's uh, over the course of time. I mean, it really does come out to a win, uh, win plus in time. So it really does kind of calculate uh, how a team should do. Over, over football is a little more difficult because it's only 16 games. But over the course of 162 games, um, you've pretty much decided who the better teams are. Yeah, at that point. You were both wearing Pirates colors. When did black and gold become the Pirates colors? In the 50s. Yeah, before that they wore red, white, and blue. The uh, 1950s? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, I, th I think as late as 48 they were black and white. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say uh, 50 or 51 is when they um, went to their more traditional um, script and uh, um, and colors. Were they the first Pittsburgh team to use black and gold? No, the Steelers. Steelers were first. Um, so the first Steeler team, I believe, was like a more Notre Dame gold uh, and and black, and then they they kind of morphed into it. So the Steelers were the who originally were called the Pirates because Rooney loved the uh, loved the Pirates, um, and he was a baseball man. Um, but um, yeah, they the Steelers were the first. Now, you say in your book that the, uh, the Pirates came to town in 1882, and they were called the Alleghenies. Mm -hmm. When did they become the Pirates? Where did that name come they, from? They became the Pirates in the, in the early 1890s. Um, and an interesting story. It was uh, with the Philadelphia team. Um, they were um, um, fighting over a player. Um, contracts weren't necessarily as uh, cut and dry as they are now. Um, so they were fighting over a player called Lou Bierbauer, um, who um, um, they were going back and forth with who actually owned his right. The Phillies had owned him. Then they became the, there was a Players League, and then after the Players League, the uh, teams or the players that played in the Players League were thought to be able to go back to the teams they played for before. It was a one-year thing. It was, it was like the first uh Player attempt at a players' union, players to control um, the game, and and when that failed, and it failed miserably in 1890, um, it was thought to go back to your original team. The, the uh, Philadelphia franchise made a clerical error with this player. Pirates swooped in, got him, and and eventually were awarded him. And the Phillies spouted out, "You pirated 
our playing. <coughs> so, which is why if you go to uh, PNC Park now, you'll see a Bierbauer Garden, because um, <laughs> he is in essence the the godfather of uh, pirate baseball. <laughs> if you had gone to a game back in the early days in the 19th century, well, first of all, where would it have been, and what would the experience have been like? Well, we've been here on the north side. Uh, the, the original park the Pirates played in was called Ex Exposition Park. There was actually three editions of Exposition Park. Each of them tended to flood. So um, the experience would have maybe been wet. We <laughs> 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 would have had to wear your uh, rubbers in the rain, like they used to say. Um, for a brief period of time, the Pirates had moved further inland away from the rivers to uh, Recreation Park, which is uh, the corner of Galveston and is it West North? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a, um, a warehouse district. Yeah, it's right a now. warehouse district yeah. on the north side. Yeah. Um, again, there, there weren't all the amenities. Certainly, you didn't have uh, um, all of the different choices of what to eat. You may have been able to buy you know, a thinly sliced piece of chipped ham on a sandwich or something. Uh, they didn't even have hot dogs, I don't think, till what, the early 1900s. 1900s yeah. Did they have stands? Or oh. did yeah. 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 There were stands. They were wooden stadiums. Um, Forbes Field, which was built in 1909, was one of the first concrete and steel stadiums. Yeah. I believe the first, first one in, in, the, the National in the National League. League. Yeah, Philadelphia yeah. had the first overall. Yeah, in Shy Park. Yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. What were the rules like? Were the rules different than they are now? Well, in the 1800s, up until 1893, a pitcher stood only 45 feet away from home plate. So um, that was, the, I think, the, the biggest, biggest rule. Difference, was, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, there were some scoring differences on, you know, statistics and things like that. It took uh, eight balls at one point for a player to walk. Um, I think that was reduced in, like, 1900, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And actually, Frank uh, Killen, if I'm not mistaken, was was the pitcher, um, who I guess he was throwing too fast for for the the distance. He was pirate. He's, uh, uh, I believe, in our top 100 in there, and um, he was the reason that they moved back. Well, he's yeah. the Pittsburgh reason. Yeah. And New Yorkers would say Amos Ruzzi, who is a really yeah. hard thrower, yeah. was the reason. I'm sure yeah. Philadelphia would have their player who was the reason, and Boston had their player, but Killen was certainly a really hard thrower that, yeah. you know, people would say, well, you know, he's one of the reasons why. They wanted to get more offense into the game, just like modern baseball always seeks to add a little more excitement and offense. Did they have a scoreboard? They, they I know they did in the 1900s, not real sure about, uh, about that period of time, but, but they did in the, uh, in the first decade of the 1900s. Old pictures that I've seen of the old older exposition park, I don't recall seeing a scoreboard in those. Of course, there's not a lot of pictures. Uh, a lot of the pictures of exposition yeah. park are, are from the exterior. Did, did you find box scores or stats? Like, how was it reported and tallied back? It, it was yeah. the, you. You had um, you had putouts. You had attempts, which were at bats, and you had hits. It wasn't as it wasn't as specific as as it is now, um, which is kind of the fun of researching that era, um, to to kind of go through and, and the box scores were were a little more elongated to try to tell you more a story. But you often, for our purposes, had to read into the story more to to find out exactly uh, what happened to the game. Whereas today, 
um, with some of the amenities you have on a baseballreference.com or, or um, um, some of the other uh, 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 retro sheet is the other one I was thinking of, which which has box scores as as early as 1920s. Um, you can reasonably recap a game from back then with those, but to to do it in that at that point in time. Um, you, you really the box scores were a guide, but they they weren't as expressive as they are today. What was sports writing like back then? It actually was. People tend to think when they're talking about it now, it was more respectful, more. It was every bit as colorful. It was every bit as um, at times bitter. I mean, they were more respectful of players' private lives, but um, it was it was kind of fun to read. It was. And at times, much more colorful to read than it was um, it is today. It would be like kind of comparing Shakespeare's uh, style of writing to Stephen King, maybe. I mean, <laughs> it just you know, the style was much more uh, flowery. Yeah. Um, one of the other things I was thinking about when when I was reading some of the old clippings was, you know, like Dave mentioned, people didn't air the dirty laundry. There might have been like euphemisms such as not taking his craft seriously enough, meaning the guy liked to drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know. I want <clears throat> to read this one thing uh, and from the uh, 1886. You write about Pud Galvin, who won 364 career games. Uh, he had an outstanding move to first, as was evidenced by a game September 23, 1886, when he walked the first three batters of the game only to pick off each man. He, he he was very uncommon uh, statistic. Yeah, just just very good with that. I mean, he it was a different strategy, different game. Um, you know, now his 364 wins is uh, pitchers in that era a little jaded. There there weren't the four and five man starting rotations. I mean, uh, uh, the earlier you get into the uh, 1980s, you're talking basically two major rotations with people in the rotation, which uh, with a third guy who would. Who would come in? So it, it wasn't uncommon to see um, wins in the 40s. How could they do that? How could they pitch like every other day? Well, I'm, I'm going to gather it was more the speed. I mean, uh, they say that uh, you know certainly one of the differences now, and I've never pitched, so I don't know, but um, is that they don't strengthen the arm properly in the minors, and 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 um, they they um, um, don't get them used to to pitching. I mean, you know, we when we were growing up watching the game. 300 innings was not a remarkable feat. Now, 200 innings uh, seems to be that that level that you go to. But back then, I would assume just the speed of the ball. It was more. Um, I mean, they they scuffed it. They they did a lot to the ball to make it uh, unhittable. Mm -hmm. um, another thing too is the ball was a dead ball. Right. The ball right. didn't go as far. Stadiums yeah. were bigger. Yeah. So. Even in the in the 1950s, I remember reading once that Ty Cobb had uh, responded to a young pitcher's um, request for some advice, and he said, "You know, throw hard, but save your really hard stuff for when you really need it." Yeah. Nowadays, pitchers pretty mm -hmm. much come out and they're firing. I mean, uh, rotations and uh, the Pirates. Um, early uh, earlier this week, there was an article saying the Pirates right now are averaging the fastest pitching in the major leagues. Yeah. Um, teams look for that. Teams look for guys who can stay away from contact. Yeah. Um, they don't want the home run to be given up. 
Right. Did, did the pirates make money in the early days? Was it a profitable thing for some uh, owner to be involved with? Um, I, the, the pirates were certainly a profitable team, um, the best team in, in the league, certainly, in, uh, um, in the first decade of the... Um, of the 20th century, or one of them. The Cubs certainly, and Giants certainly were successful too, but Pirates won four championships that decade, drew well. Um, they, they made fun of Dreyfus for, uh, Barney Dreyfus, the president, for building such a huge stadium um, in Forbes Field because they weren't used to putting uh, that many people in, and, and um, he was able to draw the 20, 25,000 people that they never, would never give, uh, uh, people credit for so um, um, it was it was I mean it's nowhere near what we see today night baseball kind of helps that um, kind of helps that along but um, Pirates were very uh, very profitable and certainly uh, very innovative with what they they did that decade well, I don't mean to stick too much to the very early days yeah. because there's so much to talk about but I do have to read this in 1900 mm -hmm. postseason Pittsburgh Chronicle Telegraph Cup the Pittsburgh Pirates versus the Brooklyn Superbas, which is a great name for a team. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and the Pirates were in the first ever World Series. Yes. yes. Yeah, they, um, the Chronicle Cup, um, there were several versions of it. There was the Temple Cup. Um, it, it was basically between the top two um, teams in the National League. Um, not really to decide anything other than it was a way to make money. Um, so it was it was a rudimentary first World Series, and, and um, that was the first year the Pirates had had in essence merged with with Louisville of the National League when the National League contracted from I believe twelve to eight teams, and Dreyfus was the owner of of Louisville at the time and made a deal. Um, he wanted to stay in the game, made a deal to uh, purchase a part of the Pirates, and became their president and, and eventually majority owner. And with him brought uh, Honus Wagner. Tommy Leach, um, well, he gave Frank up. Clark, right, Lepay. right. Gave up Jack Cheesebro only to get him back, um, so they could give it the appearance of a trade. Oh, that's what you refer to as the most lopsided trade yes. in, in history. Yes, yeah. and it was a young, what turned out to be uh, baseball's, the modern baseball's first dynasty. Um, they won the World Series in 1901 through 1903 after that, and that was the first year of the American League, which was uh, having a stealing war with the National League over players. Um, they agreed to um, play each other in a, in a postseason series, and the Pirates were heavy favorites and, and um, took a three-games-to-one lead with uh, Felipe was uh, um, certainly the, the king. He had... Uh, one, um, if I'm not mistaken, won all three games that series. Yeah. Um, and injuries, um, they had a pitcher uh, named uh, Ed Doheny who uh, went uh, mentally berserk. He was a real good pitcher. He was having a nice season. And, and so their, their starting core, which was the best in the game, was thin. If I'm not mistaken, I believe uh, Sam Lever was, was injured. Um, um, Honus Wagner was battling injuries. And unfortunately, Boston came back and upset Pittsburgh to win the series um, five games to three. Um, and it was the first black mark, in essence, on Hannes Wagner's career. He was uh, told by the Sporting News that part of it was because he was yellow, um, a coward. And it was something he took with him and, and um, took personally until he had a chance in 1909 to um, get rid of that uh, reputation against Ty Cobb in uh, 
in, in their first uh, world championship season in 1909. Is Hannes Wagner remembered today like, like he deserves Wagner to be? is still revered. Uh, but people who follow baseball in depth, they'll rate Wagner pretty consistently in the top five all-around players of all time. Uh, he was a, the dominant offensive player in the league for, for 15 years. Um, he, he was a, a, an excellent fielder no matter what position he played. He eventually settled in at shortstop uh, when the Pirates wanted him to play short. Um, he really didn't want to play shortstop initially. He felt that he was maybe better suited for third base, but uh, the Pirate manager, Fred Clark, had approached Tommy Leach, who was playing short, and said to Leach, why don't you talk to Wagner and see if Wagner would agree to switch positions with you. You know, point out to him, you know, all the great things that Hannes can do, the great throwing arm that he had, the, how much stronger it was than Leach's. And Wagner agreed to play short and went, has undoubtedly had the greatest career of a shortstop in baseball history. Yeah, and it was, it was nice on one end as, as Derek Jeter was ending his career last year. It, it brought back the stories of Hannes Wagner as comically people would try to compare Jeter and, and some try to make the claim he was greater than Wagner, which he's not even close to, um, at least in my estimation. <laughs> you say but, as a Pirates fan. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but it was nice to see, you know, Hannes kind of brought on the forefront nationally at that point because that's, that was the one shortstop mm -hmm. that, you know, they were trying to compare him to. Now you have a lot of sections in this book that are the best and worst and the, the top 10 and top 100, mm -hmm. and you, you mentioned Fred Clark, and you rate him as the best manager and Danny Murtaugh second. Now, why Fred Clark when Danny Murtaugh has so, well, so he, storied history? He won four uh, National League pennants. Um, he uh, certainly won the first World Series, uh, has the best record. Um, uh, interestingly, was a, was you know certainly a Hall of Fame left fielder as he was managing the team. But um, you know just the the great success that. Uh, that he had in that first decade, leading the Pirates, as I said, the first was the first modern dynasty. Was Danny Murtaugh the manager when you all started following him? Yeah, Murtaugh took over in '57, I believe mm -hmm. it was. Yes, and had four tenures as the Pirate manager. His health was bad. He retired first uh, in in 1963, and came back to relieve uh, Harry Walker for part of a season in '68 and came back in 70, retired again because of health issues following the Pirates World Series win in 71, and then came back a final time in uh, 73 when uh, the team was struggling. Uh, won two more division titles in 74 and 75, and retired after the 76 season. Fortunately, he suffered uh, a massive stroke following uh, this, his retirement within a month or so of retiring and passed away. It was, it was ironic that, that um, from the time he started, no pirate manager survived Danny Murtaugh uh, until uh, Chuck Tanner came um, because he, he, every pirate manager they hired who wasn't Danny Murtaugh was relieved of their job by Danny Murtaugh. <laughs> so, but, I mean, he was certainly a great manager. No ifs, ands, or buts. He won with different teams. He won um, at the highest level. And, and you know, no doubt, and, and again, deserves in the Hall of Fame conversation. Um, now, one of the incidents you tell in the story is when 
the first time an all-African-American team was fielded from the, all nine positions, and Danny Murtaugh was the manager, and, and he didn't even notice, like didn't even occur to him. No. Yeah. I think Murtaugh said something, when it comes to baseball, I guess I'm just colorblind. Yeah, and, and he was. And it was, it, it was interesting to read the description of, of it because in the original story of it, nothing's mentioned. And so I, it was a little bit, um, uh, it, it took a little bit of time before people kind of picked up on it. But uh, uh, it was funny um, reading some of, the, or doing the research, I believe it was Doc Ellis um, kind of looked over to some of the players on the bench and, and made the claim, uh, oh my God, look who's out in the field. And so they didn't even realize it as, as the game started. Um, well, speaking of which, uh, Pittsburgh was the site of some of the great Negro League teams of all time, the Homestead Grays and the uh, Crawfords. Was they ever the Pirates play any games with those guys? I don't recall seeing anything mm. about any specific Pirates versus Grays no. games. Yeah, now, there were all-star teams, major league all-star yeah. teams, who would play against the Grays or against the Crawfords or against uh, Negro League all-stars. I don't remember seeing anything that said the Pirates mm. took on Homestead no, Grays. I, I don't believe I don't believe there was. I think it was that. Although there was an interesting story in the '30s. Um, again, not not real sure the accuracy of it. You, you've heard uh, several stories, but um, uh, great and his name escapes me now. A great writer for the uh, Courier, um, Wendell Smith. Wendell Smith came to Pie Trainer, offering the services of among others um, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, Oscar Charleston. Um, which if you think about it, and I think we touch in the book there, um, had he signed, and again, nobody was going to sign an African-American at the time, um, but had he gone ahead and had the guts and made the signature, or made the signings, you would have, they would have been the New York Yankees. Um, I mean, we, we would have probably won at least five or six World Series in the next ten years. I want to, we could skip around and just open it to a random page and have you two talk about it. But one that I noticed is you have a list of 15 pirates who served in World War I, and among them is Casey Stengel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Casey Stengel and, and uh, Billy Southworth uh, were two, um, uh, two great managers that, that uh, played for the pirates in, uh, um, during the, uh, the 1910s. They didn't play much for them, um, but... Um, they, they certainly were around at that point in time, and, and um, there, there was a manager named Hugo Bezdick, who, who managed in the late um, late nineteen um, tens. Uh, who is his his thing in history is he's the only manager in baseball history who ever managed in the NFL. Uh, he actually was uh, he managed for the Cleveland Ram or coached the Cleveland Rams, but he was he was more known as a great college coach for um, Oregon and Penn State, and I believe he's in the college football. Hall of Fame because of that, but um, they hired him as a manager. He actually brought the team back to 500. Um, they were having difficult times in that point, and, and you know, the joke was you look at the managerial talent he had on his bench um, to kind of help him out. Um, but um, but yeah, they they certainly had very short pirate careers. Um, How long does it take to put a book like this together? This one not too long. <laughs> this is the second edition. The first edition took about ten months really to put together um, yeah. the research from the time we got a contract to do the book to actually having everything turned in. How did you decide what to put in and what not to put in? And 
Well, when we, there, there have been other team encyclopedias, and when we were looking at the different team encyclopedias, we took ideas that we liked from certain books and ideas we didn't, weren't crazy about, we left out. What we wanted to do differently was to kind of do a ranking of the players. We thought that would create a lot of good discussion, a lot of good arguments in local taverns, and um, people still will, you know, bring that up to me and, and want to say, well, this guy was better. Uh, Dave, I think, had this one fan who kept emailing him constantly <laughs> talking about how Paul Wehner was better than Clemente. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it was interesting. And, and we were lucky, our, our publisher, Sports Publishing, Inc., um, was good enough that they would let us basically create what we wanted to create because um, it really isn't like any other book. They put out a few other encyclopedias and it really wasn't on the format that the others um, had and we were, I mean, we were pretty much novices in the book world at that point in time um, and we were so happy they gave us the, the creative license, so to speak, to put together the book as we saw fit. How'd they pick you to do the book? We picked them. We approached them. Yeah, it, it, was, it was basically a, a great timing um, situation. Um, I, had just, uh, I just finished a book on baseball in World War II, which was my first book, and we, um, we, this is a book we always wanted to do. I mean, we've known each other since the early 70s, and, um, you know, we, for years, this is what we talked about every day. Um, so we, we found out who, who did a similar book to what we wanted to do. Um, we contacted them, and, and at that point in time, they were looking to add encyclopedias. So it was, it was, uh, it was a good timing situation. So when you took the, the first edition and wanted to do an update of it, did you just leave everything in this, or did you go back and revisit some of the things that were in the first volume? Well, we revisited, first of all, our top 100 players. So we looked at them a little differently. We, when we comprised our list of the top 100, we, Dave and I each came up with a subjective list, guys that we thought would be, you know, uh, how would we rank these players? And then we came up with some objective statistical type of um, analysis and put that together, and, and we combined the two. So uh, if a guy scored, say, if it was the number 50th rated player between Dave and I, and he was number uh, 20 uh, in the statistical ranking, he would move up to uh, number 32, 33, something like that. Yeah. Did that make a lot of interesting discussions? Oh, yeah. That was, yes. That was the fun part. I, I, I mean, it was the fun part. And then um, we would, by this point in time, I mean, people were familiar with the encyclopedia, and, and um, we would bounce some ideas off of some of uh, uh, the folks in, who cover the pirates uh, for various things like pirateprospects.com. Um, this one guy, uh, John Drecker, does a fabulous job uh, reporting for their West Virginia team. Um, threw out the name Dots Miller. So he kind of, he's second baseman in the, uh, with Hottis Wagner in the um, early part of the century. And when we looked at him, you know, it was uh, a little eye opening that. Uh, you know, well, maybe this guy isn't just somebody we had a biography on. Maybe he's somebody that actually belongs in the top hundred. Or, you know, uh, Billy had looked at uh, um, Ed Morris, who was how we really didn't take him as seriously. He ended up in the close to the top fifty in the book. Um, but it, it was probably the funnest part of the book, and one we we certainly between the two of us probably take the most pride in. Um, 
because you, you want to make sure you nail it as close as as close as you can. So it was one we revisited quite a bit. One guy who barely made the top 100, Clyde Barnhart, at number 100. Uh, did it, was it hard to pick the, the 100th knowing that you had to leave off everybody else? Not really. Um, in our first edition, he was probably around n number 94 or something. So yeah. he was already in that list. Yeah. Uh, when you get down to like, with the statistical analysis, you might be talking one or two points out of a potential, I think Hannes Wagner scores like 300 and some points. Yeah. And we get down to like these people in the 90, 90 to 100 range, you're talking one or two points making a difference on yeah. how they're going to be ranked. And, and if you look at it, there, there's probably another 20 or 30 guys after that who, in my eyes, are interchangeable. Um, but, um, you know, certainly Barnhart is a, is a great pirate and, and you think about the thousands of players who, who put on a pirate uniform. A hundred isn't bad. Yeah, hundreds, 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 uh, hundreds not too bad at all. Uh, you mentioned Paul, well, the Wainers, and mm -hmm. number three on your list is Paul Wainer. Mm -hmm. What is distinctive about him? Paul Wainer was a terrific line drive hitter. Um, he had such a feel for uh, hitting a baseball that when, when I got to interview Bobby Bregan for the first edition, he would say how Wainer could pick a bat out and know it was his bat. He would blindfold him, and he, he knew the difference. Um, led the league in batting four times. Uh, before Clemente, uh, definitely the top right fielder in Pittsburgh history. And, and the, some people would argue maybe the top right fielder in National League history before maybe Hank Aaron. Yeah. No, he, he um, uh, and one of the things about him, he's probably, um, I mean, you had asked earlier about if people remember Hannes Wagner. Well, this, this is the guy that people don't remember, who, who was probably the most forgotten pirate uh, legend, um, you know, including sometimes the team. I mean, they retired his number, it was 2007, if I'm not mistaken, when they, when they retired his number. Um, certainly a guy, in my estimation, who should, should have a statue um, um, in, in, the, uh, in the stadium. His brother was pretty good, too. His brother was Lloyd, real good. Lloyd Wayne He's on was, your list, but yeah. pretty high up there. Yeah. yeah. Lloyd was not as good of a hitter as Paul, and Lloyd didn't hit anywhere near with the power line. Paul Wainer had a, a unique style of hitting where he could basically hit the ball down the left field line or pull it down the right field line. Therefore, he had a lot of doubles, a lot of triples. Lloyd Wainer is more of a slap hitter, um, maybe more comparable in over the last 50 years to Matty Alou, a guy who used his speed a lot, could punch the ball through the infield, chop the ball over a third baseman's head, um, seldom hit a home run, um, and a lot of his doubles were probably more leg doubles because he was so fast. He was uh, one of the fastest players of his time. Unfortunately, he played during an era when the stolen base almost became extinct, so he doesn't have any impressive stolen base totals to, that would, people would look at and say, wow, what a great you know, leadoff man, what a fast ball player. Absolutely. Willie Stargell, number four. I mean, we could go through this and oh, absolutely. Uh, do this for the now, rest of now, the time we have. Now, Stargell, um, they, they say that uh, Forbes Field robbed him of, of uh, being a 500 home run man in, in his career. Um, but, I mean, he, here's certainly a guy who, when he came to Three River Stadium, um, immediately showed just how dynamic it could be, if I'm not mistaken, 48 home runs in, in – um, um, in 71, um, but the um, thing about Stargell that, that at least uh, as great as he was, 
at last year. I mean, here was a guy that had been injured um, for a couple years before that, um, picks it up a little in, in 78, but by 79 he becomes, you know, has, in my estimation, and I know Billy and I discuss this at times, but in my estimation, that put him in the Hall of Fame. I disagree. Uh, but, I, yeah, yeah. Respectfully. Respectfully. Since we're on TV. Yeah. Since we're yeah. on TV. <laughs> but in my estimation, he, he was a borderline Hall of Fame candidate before that year. But, I mean, he picks up a team that, that um, you know, your Phillies were certainly the dominant team in the National League at the time. And... Um, just has a magic year. It was our first year at uh, Duquesne. We we both uh, were in high school together, Greensburg Central, and 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 went to Duquesne after that. And and uh, the Pirates certainly cost me a bad semester that first uh, that first year because I was at the stadium uh, so many times. But but Stargell just, I mean, winning, uh, tying with Keith Hernandez for the National League MVP um, in the playoffs. He just carries them on the back. They all the Cincinnati Reds were there. Um, were, were the monkey on their back, so to speak. They had defeated them in, uh, in, in 1970 and in uh, just a nasty NLCS, the Bob Moose uh, wild pitch in 1972, um, and they, de they defeated them again in 75. So they had no playoff success against uh, um, the Reds, and, and you know certainly on, on with the help of Stargell, they sweep them in, in two dramatic games in Cincinnati and then just blow them out in... Uh, in uh, Three Rivers uh, uh, for Game Three, and and then he, he just has a magnificent World Series against the Orioles. They come back down three to one, um, um, and that seventh game hits the clutch homer, um, wins the MVP of the National League Championship Series, wins the MVP of the World Series, and um, you know we're we're down in Market Market Square celebrating the championship and. I remember thinking, oh, my God, we're going to be doing this next year, going to be doing this the next year, and, you know, we've gotten a lot older, a lot balder, and, and we're still waiting for that uh, next year to happen. But, I mean, he, he just is such a magnificent season in, in uh, pirate, uh, pirate history, history for Stargell. Bill, what part about that do you disagree with? I think Stargell was a Hall of Famer before 1979. Yeah. I yeah. think that... Uh, when Stargell was playing, 400 home runs would have gotten a guy into the Hall of Fame, and he had already surpassed that. Yeah. He had led the league a couple of times in home runs. He had had uh, multiple appearances in all-star games. I, I think that even if he had had uh, a more steady decline with a, you know, uh, a, another fine year in 78 and 79, I think that he still would have made the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, maybe I, not on the first ballot. Right. I think he would have gotten and in. I, I just wasn't as convinced at that point. But it, but he, he certainly. I mean, we both certainly agree he was one of the greatest pirates of, of all time. Uh, yeah. And you and, also have I, loads of players to talk about: Archie Vaughn, Ralph Kiner, Guy Trainer. Archie Vaughn is. I mean, he was one. He holds the all-time modern pirate uh, um, record for batting average in. Uh, in a season with 385, but uh, was one of the great shortstops of his era. Um, ironically, wore 21 at the end of his career, like Clemente, and and mm -hmm. drowned um, in his in his 40s. So he, you know, two of the greatest players in Pirate history, both wearing 21, both uh, both certainly dying tragically at a at a young age. Yeah. Um, Bond dying a hero's death as well. He yeah, was trying same. to save a friend who couldn't swim. They were up. Uh, fishing uh, and the boat yeah. capsized and Vaughn I guess was a pretty good swimmer 
And I think during when Vaughn was inducted to the Hall of Fame uh, in 1985, his daughter did the acceptance speech, and I think she said at the time that literally they could have stood up in the water. Yeah, which, uh, which but was the man that he was with had panicked yeah. so badly that it, it, it pulled yeah. Vaughn down with him. Yeah, uh, Ralph Kiner, uh, I mentioned, who led the league at home runs for how many years? Seven years, like seven, years seven yeah. straight years as a Pirate, yeah. and. Um, was uh, very gracious. I got to interview Kiner for the original edition of the book, and very gracious uh, talking with him about his memories as, yeah. a, as a pirate. Who's but the top pitcher on your list? A guy named Babe Adams. Um, came over, uh, uh, he had pitched for St. Louis, I believe, in uh, 1907, was in the minors in 08, and um, was the This the is first 1908. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and he was, uh, he was dubbed uh, the first uh, first true babe in baseball before Ruth because he had movie movie star looks, um, but he came to the Pirates in 1909 was was like a, um, a fifth starter reliever so to speak, um, but in the 1909 World Series had one of the great uh, pitching performances in the history of the game, um, won three games for the Pirates including an eight nothing uh, shutout in in uh, Game Seven um, uh, against the Tigers that that. You know, as, as well as uh, Wagner played, he was the MVP of that series by far. Now, he was a great, one of the great control pitchers of all time. In fact, one, um, um, one game, I, I forget the exact year, but he, he went 21 innings uh, pitching without allowing a walk, which is still, uh, I mean, it's a record that will never be beaten, obviously. But um, he pitched all 21 innings? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And his opponent, uh, who I believe was Rube Marquardt, uh, pitched all 21 innings too. Ended up, he lost the game, unfortunately, but, but still one of the most dramatic, uh, impressive control uh, um, feats of all time. Um, well, while we're speaking about that, as yeah. we're jumping around, Harvey Haddix hmm. has the, the, the unfortunate distinction of, uh, you want to talk about Harvey Haddix and his game? Haddix um, was a, a left-handed pitcher. Um, known as a very good pitcher with the, the Phillies, the Cardinals. He came to the Pirates via the Reds in 1958, uh, following that season. And in 1959, on a cold day in May, he was fighting a cold himself, uh, went out and pitched a, maybe the greatest game of all time, 13, uh, well, 12 and two-thirds hitless innings of, of pitching and in the 13th inning. And, there, and the thing, I remember Bob Prince used to always say, there was no ball hit in that game that looked like it was truly going to be a hit. There was one nice running catch by the center fielder Roman Mejias, but nothing that required a great diving play or an incredible throw from deep in the hole which short. Unfortunately, the Pirates hadn't scored either, so uh, against Lou Burdett, a fine pitcher from the Braves, and in the 13th inning, um, the um, Braves, uh, Felix Mantilla led off with a, a ground ball to uh, the Pirate third baseman, Don Hoke, who made an error. Um, Mantilla went to second. They intentionally walked um, Hank Aaron, which wasn't, uh, was kind of a no-brainer, but the Braves ha had an excellent hitter, Joe Adcock, following Aaron, who smacked what should have been a home run. Um, Adcock passed Aaron on the bases, however, and it was ruled uh, just a double. Just a double, but it was a loss, uh, the greatest loss maybe of all time, oh. greatest pitch loss. And, and um, ironically today not even recognized by Major League Baseball as an official 
no-hitter before they would recognize anything over nine innings. Um, I believe in 90, I want to say 92 or 93, you had to complete the game as a no-hitter to be recognized. But it, but it certainly, um, I mean, arguably in my head is the greatest pitch game ever because nobody's ever pitched 12 perfect innings before. Um, and um, just, uh, I mean, that would have been a game if you were watching, you just had to be crushed for the guy. <laughs> you have as, at number 13, Bill Mazeroski, who was not all that great a hitter. I mean, good, but not. He, he actually, um, when we were doing the stats for the first go-around, um, I mean, Bill had come up. He, he actually led the National League in several hitting categories for second baseman in the 60s. 60s were not a great hitting um, era. Um, and um, he, he did remarkably well when compared to his counterparts during that, uh, during that decade, which was something that, I mean, certainly surprised me as, as we were mm -hmm. looking it up. So he, he was a little better than he got credit for. But, but certainly, arguably, if not definitely, the greatest defensive second baseman in the history of the game. Mm -hmm. uh, another, here's one who was not in your first volume, and that is Andrew McCutcheon, who comes in at number 17. Now, we're recording this in early in the season in 2015, and Andrew yeah. McCutcheon is in the flower of his career yeah. right now. Is it hard to place him in the top 100 at this point in his career? No, no, it wasn't hard at all. The question was, would he make, would he be in the top 20 and where would he fall? And in our, in our rankings, one of the things we look at is, you know, awards that uh, players receive. And McCutcheon's won an MVP award. He's finished in the top three, three straight years. Um, he's been a dominant player. And much like uh, an earlier player, Kai Kai Kyler, he hasn't had a very long career yet in Pittsburgh but his career is dominated. Uh, same thing in a way with Barry Bonds. Oh. Bonds was only here in Pittsburgh for seven years, but he was you know, the best player in baseball for three of those years. Right, and, and, it, and it's, I mean, Bonds uh, had, in my estimation, better three-year period between 90 and 92, but certainly McCutcheon over the last three years, um, you know, top three guy in the MVP race, uh, uh, two of them winning the MVP in between. Um, and, I mean, the thing about him is I, I, he's a guy I can see spending the rest of his career here, and, and um, at the pace he's going, certainly should be a no-brainer for a top seven or eight in our, in our list by the time he's done. Well, before we run out of time, we should talk about the 1960 World Series because you list the best ten games ever, and you have the seventh game of the 1960 World Series oh. as number one. Yeah. Can you paint the picture of that game? Well, you, you, you had a Yankee team who was just such a heavy favorite. I mean, you know, you Barra, you Mantle, uh, you Maris, um, uh, certainly just a who's who of baseball history on that team uh, against a pirate upstart team who, who basically between 1949 and, um, and 1957 had been a doormat in, in, in the league. Um, they, they surprised everybody with a second place finish in, in 58, 59, they finished over 500, but were injuries kind of cost them um, uh, advancement of in, in the standings a little bit. But 60, they come out, they have the perfect season, they won 34, 35 games on their last at bat. Vern Law has season for the ages, wins the Cy Young, um, three Pirates finish in the top eight. Um, in the MVP race, and, and Dick Grote, who was injured the last month of the year, yet uh, led the league in batting and, and won the MVP 
Hoke had finished second, and Clemente, um, um, who was a bitter moment in his life, finished eighth. And, and certainly it was something he felt was because of his, his uh, race and heritage that uh, um, was why he finished uh, uh, so low, which, which to the point he never wore his 1960 World Championship ring, instead wearing a 61 uh, All-Star ring. Um, through the through the decade because of that, but regardless, you had you had great um, um, you had up and coming young starters, a young Bill Mazeroski, um, um, you know Dickie Schofield who replaced uh, um, Grode in September at short and was magnificent. Bob Skinner, um, the Quail, Billy Verdon, uh, um, certainly until Vance Light came was certainly the best defensive center fielder and and. Uh, um, in the team, and, and um, um, these guys just just lit up the city. Um, um, won um, uh, won the pennant by seven games over uh, over the Brewers, and um, just came into the series uh, the first series in 35 years as decided underdogs. Well, every game the Pirates won, they're nip and tucking, winning by one, low scoring games, and when the Yankees are winning. Um, I want to say I want to say thirty-three to thirty-three to two outscored or fifty-five to twenty-seven for the series. The yeah. series, yeah. And you have the uh, Pirates team ERA was seven point one one. Absolutely, Yankee, and they won the World Series. Right. I mean, the Yankees won ten nothing. I want to say sixteen to two or three one game, thirteen to nothing one game. Is it twelve nothing? Or twelve nothing? Yes. Yeah. 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 And and the last game was going the Pirates' way. They were up four nothing. Vern Law, when I interviewed him for the original book, made the statement that um, Mazeroski should thank him for going into the Hall of Fame because had Murtaugh left him in the game, there would have been no need for Mazeroski's heroics um, <laughs> at the end of the game because he, um, he had been injured in the celebration after they won the pennant. He tweaked his ankle a little, and, and I'm not sure Murtaugh trusted. He was starting to, and by, thank God, Bing Crosby, who had the film of of the uh, Game 7, which MLB put out a couple years ago, allowing us all to just live the greatest game in Pirate history. Oh, the whole game is preserved? Oh, game yeah, yeah, it yeah. came out a few years ago. Um, Bing Crosby was nervous about seeing the, the game. Team. It was he one was of the owners, owners of the, of the team. team. Yeah. And he was in France at the time, and he had NBC work him up a, uh, um, a kinescope at the time that he could watch when he came back. And they were doing a documentary on Bing a few years ago. Um, and they came across these these uh, cans of film, and they started playing them. And it's like, oh my God, this is Game Seven of the 1960 World Series. Mm -hmm. And so MLB Network put it on a couple years ago, and it was one of my greatest thrills to see that game. Mm -hmm. um, but um, he was starting to fade a little bit, so I, I tend to give Murtaugh a pass that that was probably the right thing at the time um, to put him in. But the the Yankees come back; they go ahead seven to four. Um, Pirates in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, uh, there's a play where Tony Kubek gets hit in the throat um, on an easy grounder. Um, Clemente with two outs uh, uh, hits the ball uh, to the or to the first baseman. Pitcher slow to get to uh, first base, so he's on. So again, plays that could have gotten him out of the inning easily. So Hal Smith, who was the potentially platoon, the greatest yeah, hero in yeah, Pittsburgh history, a platoon yeah. catcher, hits a dramatic home run to make it nine to seven. You know, going to the top of the inning, Yankees chip away with two more uh, runs to tie it up. One on a, um, 
Uh, great play by Mickey Mantle. There was a line drive, I believe, by Yogi Berra that uh, Rocky Nelson caught, and instead of tagging um, uh, Mantle, he kind of... It was a hard smash, right. actually. Back yeah. It went, well, yeah. Like a hard shot. Hard shot. And that he it, right. and didn't throw to second. Right. Yeah. And Mantle snuck in. And, and um, you know, just fluke plays that, that kept this game close. And then Mazeroski, of course, uh, uh, coming up in the bottom of the ninth, taking Hal Smith's... Uh, hero ship away from him, um, <laughs> making it the most forgotten home run in Pittsburgh history. And the place, uh, my mother-in-law and father, I just love the stories of them talking about um, that game, just mm -hmm. erupted and the city erupted and, and still, I would say in my estimation, the most memorable Pittsburgh team, uh, regardless of sport. And yet you write in your book that Bobby Richardson of the Yankees was the MVP in that series, yeah, even though they MVP. lost. He, Richardson said all types of RBI and hitting records. Um, you know, I, my argument would be not just Mazeroski hitting a big home run uh, to win the series, but he also won one of the other games. His home run was the deciding blow in one of the other games. Yeah. And he also had another really clutch hit in one of the games the Pirates won. So it seemed like, you know, it's nice to drive in all those runs, but the Yankees probably would have won five to nothing anyways if Richardson hadn't gotten yeah. those hits. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. Um, what, Bill, what was the um, greatest game you ever saw in person? I was there when Clemente got his 3,000th hit. That mm -hmm. still stands out to me. A friend of mine, John Toth, had gotten a, tickets. Um, his father had gotten tickets through work, and a couple weeks ahead of time, we kind of joked, well, maybe we'll get to see Clemente's 3,000th hit. And the night before, uh, Clemente hit a, it was a 2,999 and he hit a ground ball towards the Mets' second baseman, Ken Boswell. And at first, the reaction in the stadium was 3,000th hit. It's a hard chopper. Uh, Boswell fumbled it, uh, but the official score posted it as an error. And John and I jumped up in, our, in my, my living room like, we're going to get to see that 3,000th hit tomorrow. And, and Clemente was mad. Clemente was mad. Yeah, yeah he felt initially yeah. that, you know, that he had made a comment that <clears throat> scorekeepers had taken away many hits in his career. Um, but then he saw, I believe it was Luke Quay who worked for the McKeesport, was it right. Daily he, News? he was the one that night. And yeah. he knew Luke Quay was a, a, a fair scorer and a good yeah. writer. And he said, if Luke Quay said it was an error, it's an error. Yeah. And what was the hit that he got? He, Clemente smacked a double um, to left center field um, the next day against John Matlack was pitching for the Mets. And uh, I remember when he hit it, thinking to myself in kind of a weird way, boy, if that's not a hit, he's never going to get a hit, <laughs> hit that 3,000. Because it was su such an obvious, obviously hit towards the gap. And David, what's your greatest moment that you wished um, witnessed? The greatest game I saw was with Bill. It was uh, the 94 All-Star game, which was exciting. But the greatest pirate game, and again, I was also with Bill, was um, right over at PNC Park a couple years ago against uh, the Cincinnati Reds in the wild card. And just the after 20 years of what we went through, to see that place just so packed, I'm getting a little goosebumpy now talking about it. Um, the fans just, it was like a college football crowd in the SEC. Um, they were just so into it. Everything happened so perfectly. And in fact, that night I told Bill in, in 2001 when we went to the first game at PNC Park, if they ever make the playoffs, I'm going to eat sushi right here. <laughs> I've never had sushi before, so and I have I have a clip of it on on my old phone. But that night, he remembered, 
So uh, I, I had sushi. It was the most disgusting thing I've ever eaten, but I kept my deal, <laughs> and we ate it. But that, that was just such a fun, fun, magical night. And, and you know, as, as many good games that I've seen over the years, that is probably the one I, I probably cherish the most. Well, that'll have to be the last word. We're out of time. We've been speaking with Dave, uh, Bill Rainier and David Finoli. They are the authors of this book, The Pittsburgh Pirates Encyclopedia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.